everyone. Welcome to session seven of our study in Colossians. The passage we'll be focusing on today is Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through chapter 3, verse 4. And I'd like to begin today by, by reading the passage. And I'll be reading from the CSB. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I'd like to begin by asking a question. And it's a question regarding the idea of new versus old. Have you ever owned something really old? Maybe it was worn out, had no real value, yet you had such an affinity for it that you just couldn't give it up. Maybe it was broken down, useless, yet you just couldn't throw it away. Well, my father once had this car. It was old. It was ugly. It was constantly breaking down. It caused him all manner of frustration. It wasn't worth anything, but he still loved that car. He affectionately called it Old Blue. He swore he would never part with it, even though he knew a new car would be cleaner, safer, more reliable. A new car wouldn't leave him stranded, yet he still had trouble letting go of that old car. Sometimes letting go of old things is difficult. And I believe that's the struggle the Colossians were facing. Although they had received this new life, they were reverting back to their old ways of following worldly practices. Now remember from last week in verse 11 of chapter 2, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, You have put off your body of flesh, your old sinful nature. Romans 6, 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. So they have put off their old sinful nature. And in verse 13 of chapter 2, it says you've been made alive with Christ, or you've been given a new life. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus as Lord of our lives, we become transformed transformed from the old to the new. So Paul asked the question in chapter 2, verse 20, if you died with Christ to your old life, then why are you living like you still belong to it? If we've truly been transformed through salvation, then the focus of our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes will be Christ, not the things of the world. You see, the Colossians were buying into this idea They were buying into the idea of worldly practices and human regulations. In verse 21, it says, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. You see, this is a reference to the practice of asceticism, 
which teaches that only through severe self-denial can one truly become more spiritual. The false teachers were telling them, this is the way to act. This is the way to think if you're really a Christian. We see the same thing today. People say, if you're really a Christian, then you'd be acting this way and you'd be thinking these things. Verse 23 even tells us that these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility. Worldly ways may appear wise. People might cite research studies and statistics. They may be extremely dedicated to their cause. They may even pull out a Bible verse they think supports their views. But we must remember from chapter 2, verse 19, they are not connected to the head, which is Christ. So we must hold fast to the head and not be afraid to refuse to follow worldly practices that don't line up with the Word of God. So how do we do this? Well, chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, By seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The spiritual transformation that a person undergoes when they become a Christian makes them different than they were before. It makes them different than the world. So, if we call ourselves Christians, yet we look around us and find that we don't act, think, or believe any differently than anyone else, then there's a problem. We may need to recalibrate and remind ourselves of who the source of life really is and reconnect with him through prayer and reading his word. So, what does the life of a transformed person look like? Well, they make seeking the things of God a priority. We should set our mind on seeking these things. Verse 2 of chapter 3 tells us. From the Greek, it means to strive for earnestly. As Christians, our position is child of God. So we should put our position into practice. It's a choice. It's a choice of will. One commentator says it this way. Believers' lives should be dominated by the pattern of heaven, bringing heavenly direction to their earthly duties. Romans 8.5 says, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. So our lives should be guided by the Holy Spirit. We should seek things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is a place of authority. And we should always be cognizant of the fact that Jesus is our ultimate authority over the things we do and the way we act. And our lives should reflect that. So do they? Do our actions reflect Jesus' control or our control? Matthew Henry says, We must mind the concerns of another world more than the concerns of this. Verse 2 says to set our mind on what's above, not on the things that are on the earth. You see, heaven and the world, they're contrary to one another. So setting our minds on one naturally takes our minds away from the other. So again, how do we do this? Well, as we previously mentioned, by spending time with Jesus through worship, through serving him. And the amazing thing about this is that when we do these things, when we really set our mind on things above, that is the place where we are going to find true contentment. 
Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Psalm 16.8-9 says, I always let the Lord guide me. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. There was a Puritan author from the 1600s named Jeremiah Burroughs. And he writes in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, about setting our minds on God rather than the world. And he says, what's the end that God has set in all his ways? Surely it is that his blessed name be magnified, that his glory may be set forth. Then shall be the great design of my life. The glory of God should be the chief matter we are to pray for, the chief place above all other things. He goes on to say that a Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. A heart that has no grace knows no way to get contentment but to have his possessions raised up to his desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions. So then he attains true contentment. You see, he understood that a life of peace is found in a relationship with Jesus. Now, this sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because you would think focusing on yourself would be the greatest contentment. That's what the world says. Seek after your own desires, your own passions. Set your mind and heart on what makes you happy. But happiness isn't always what's best. Giving our children nothing but candy would make them very happy until their teeth fall out. We must trust that when God tells us to seek after and set our minds on him, it's because that is what is best for us. Like a parent knows what is best for their child. Chapter three, verse three says that we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Our old sinful natures have died and now we are safe, protected and concealed in Jesus. Therefore, we cannot become overcome or overtaken by the concerns of life. Jesus is our shelter. He is our defender. We are secure in him. And because that we are being kept safe and protected, then we can be free. We can be free to be the person that God has called us to be. Knowing Jesus is protecting us gives us the courage. It gives us the courage to act and think like a Christian in an environment that is becoming more and more hostile to our beliefs. Okay, so here's a silly example, but I think it makes the point. When I was a teenager, my mom rescued this lost puppy. He was on the side of a busy road and he was going in and out of traffic. So my mom pulled over and scooped him up. And when she first brought him home, that puppy was very fearful. I mean, he would cower under the deck in our backyard but we continue to love him. We continue to nurture him. And once his little puppy brain began to understand that he was safe and protected, he was free. He was free to be the little dog he was supposed to be. Fear affects attitude. Fear affects actions. And as Christians, our lives are hidden with Jesus. So we don't have to fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God does not give the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. So we can be bold in our faith and bold in our love 
and bold with our witness. So have courage, dear believer, to take that next step that God is nudging you to. Have courage to do that next thing that God is urging you toward. Even if people don't understand why we think the way we think or why we do what we do, it's okay. Because we are no longer motivated by self-preservation. Our motivation comes from a desire to follow the ways of God. There was a senator who once said, In politics, where you stand depends on where you sit. Meaning whatever side of the political aisle you sit on, that's what determines where you stand on the issues. And I think this idea reflects our position in Christ. We are hidden with Jesus, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And one day we will be seated in heaven too. So the fact that we are heaven-bound should determine where we stand on the issues in life. Verse 4 goes on to say that Christ is our life. 1 John 5.12 says, The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And when he appears, the verse goes on to say, we will appear with him in glory. 1 John 3.2 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. Matthew Henry says it this way, What is there here to make us fond of it, compared to what is there to draw our hearts to it? Our head is there, our hearts are there, our home is there, our treasure is there, and someday we will be there forever. So does this idea still resonate with us? That Christ is our life? It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? being a Christian. We are at the same time both dead and alive. We are dead to the power and condemnation of sin, yet alive in Christ. I read this quote the other day that says, your life is what you're alive to. A child may come alive when you mention his favorite toy or game. A teenager might come alive when you mention their favorite music or sports team. What makes you come alive? Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ. Jesus is what made Paul come alive. So as we close today, our challenge question is just that. What makes you come alive? Does it include the things of God? Well, thank you so much for being here today and spending this time with me. I look forward to meeting you again. God bless you.